Shoes are important in fairy tales. Cinderella's slipper, seven-league boots, the worn-out slippers of the dancing princesses. Shoes were so important because they were the most expensive and valuable item a person without wealth had. But there was one pair of shoes that were not so magical in fairy tales. Not so transformative. The red shoes. The shoes that once put on cannot be taken off. I'm Claire Testoni and this is Singing Bones. With the red shoes we won't be talking much about its history as it's a literary tale written by the most famous writer of literary fairy tales, Hans Christian Andersen. Unlike his other tales such as The Snow Queen or The Wild Swans, there is not a history behind the tale as an oral tradition. There are some recognisable themes that seem to relate to the traditional story of the girl without hands, also known as the girl with silver hands, but the motif of the red shoes was original and drawn from the childhood of Anderson himself. Anderson is a fascinating person with a complex personal morality and distinctive imagination. So in order to understand the history of the red shoes, we really need to understand him. Just as a heads up, I will be acknowledging the existence of sex in this episode. So if that offends you or you have little ears listening, this might be an episode to skip. Anderson was born in 1805 in Denmark to a shoemaker also called Hans Anderson. Anderson Sr. claimed that the family was descended from royalty and hinted that he himself might be the illegitimate son of King Christian VIII. However, there is absolutely no proof available for this claim. What seems more likely from the portrait Anderson draws of his father in his writings was the family talent for fantasy manifested itself differently in the father than in the son. Anderson recounts his childhood with a father that is larger than life, loud, boisterous, proud and convinced of his own superiority. Hans Christian could not have been more different, shy, quiet and with a quality that those he met later in life often described as unnerving. Very tall, very ungainly, he seemed to struggle much communicating in person, while his pen could fly and reach great heights. He had a pauper's education and joined the stage as a boy soprano, and it was there in the theatre that he developed the desire to be a poet. The director of the theatre, in Copenhagen, then paid for a better education for the boy, partly helped by the Danish crown, and Anderson became publishing while still a teenager in school. Now by the 1830s, fairy tales were quite in fashion thanks to the Grimm brothers, and Anderson's stories became widely read. Anderson became quite famous and admired as an author. His writing was seen as that elusive balance of wholesome, literary, and enjoyable to read. Anderson kept meticulous diaries that recorded his many meetings with the illustrious and famous in his life, as well as the many quirks of his person. His early diaries record his refusal to have sex either before or after marriage. Until recently, it has been believed that he was asexual. 
However, recent scholarship has gone over these diaries again and discovered the code he used to record his masturbation habits. Not that they weren't there before, but previous scholars had just politely pretended they weren't. Anderson's sexuality does not fit neatly into the categories we use today. Some asexual people do identify as self-sexual. And really, it would be none of our business if it wasn't for the fact that sexuality, or the lack of it, wasn't such a large theme in his work. Anderson wrote incredibly romantic letters to men and women, yet he never pursued a relationship with either. He appears to have been both disgusted by sex and fascinated, but his sexual energies were always expended alone. He enjoyed looking at prostitutes in brothels, but just talking with them and being friendly before going home and pleasuring himself. Many have simply dismissed him as a religious prude, but I don't think it's that simple. Looking at his fairy tales and his poetry, we see a man who values purity above everything, strives for it, holds chastity and innocence above all virtues. He is so driven to these ideals that he can't even lie to himself in his diary when he fails to live up to them. Victorian repression seems the best label to coat him with, which brings us back to the red shoes. Anderson said the idea came from his childhood. His father, a shoemaker, was brought a bolt of red silk by a wealthy woman and requested a pair of red slippers for her daughter. Anderson Sr. clearly thought red an unsuitable colour for a child, but obliged the woman. The woman came to collect the shoes and thought them gaudy. No surprise, really. And so Hans Anderson Sr. cut them up in front of her, destroying the silk as well as his work. Red had once been the colour of true love. It's the colour of blood and sacrifice in the Catholic Church. But after the Reformation and the introduction of Puritanism, red came to represent sin, lust, whores, and sex. In the tale, The Red Shoes, a little girl called Karen is raised by a rich old lady after her poor mother dies. After seeing a princess in a pair of red shoes, she craves a pair of her own. She lusts after them. And when she is finally given a pair in shiny, patent red leather, she insists on wearing them to church for her Holy Communion, even after she is told they are not suitable to do so. Every eye was turned towards her feet when she walked up the aisle of the church. It seemed to her as if even those portraits of bygone ministers and their wives in starched ruffs and long black gowns, even they fixed their eyes upon her red shoes. She could think of nothing else, even when the pastor laid his hands on her head and spoke her holy baptism and her covenant with God and her duty as a Christian. The solemn organ rolled. The children sang sweetly and the old choir leader sang too. But Karen thought of nothing except her red shoes. Before the afternoon was over, the old lady had heard from everyone in the parish that the shoes were red. She told Karen it was naughty to wear red shoes to church, highly improper. 
In future, she was to always wear black shoes to church, even though they were her old ones. Next Sunday, there was Holy Communion. Karen looked at her black shoes. She looked at her red ones. She kept looking at her red ones until she put them on. It was a fair, sunny day. Karen and the old lady took the path through the cornfield, where it was rather dusty. At the church door, they met an old soldier. He stood with a crutch and wore a long, curious beard. It was more reddish than white. In fact, it was quite red. He bowed down to the ground and asked the old lady if he might dust her shoes. Karen put out her little foot too. Oh, what beautiful shoes for dancing, the soldier said. Never come off when you dance, he told the shoes as he tapped the sole of each of them with his hand. The old lady gave the soldier a penny and went into the church with Karen. All the people there stared at Karen's red shoes and the portraits stared too. When Karen knelt at the altar rail and even when the chalice came to her lips, she could think only of her red shoes. It was as if they kept floating around in the chalice and she forgot to sing the psalm. She forgot to say the Lord's Prayer. Then church was over, and the old lady got into her carriage. Karen was lifting her foot to step in when the old soldier said, Oh, what beautiful shoes for dancing. Karen couldn't resist taking a few dancing steps, and when she began, her feet kept on dancing. It was as if the shoes controlled her. She danced around the corner of the church. She simply could not help it. The coachman had to run after her, catch her, and lift her into the carriage. But even there, her feet went on dancing, that she gave the good old lady a terrible kicking. Only when she took her shoes off did her legs quiet down. When they got home, the shoes were put away in a cupboard. But Karen would still go and look at them. Karen cannot resist the shoes, and the shoes take her over more and more. The dancing becomes unstoppable. The red-bearded soldier pops up again and curses her for her vanity, telling her she cannot take the shoes off. Karen dances and dances and cannot be stopped. She dances to the house of an executioner, a fellow sinner, and repents and begs him to strike her feet with his axe. The shoes dance away, her feet still in them. And the crippled girl finds solace and forgiveness in the church at the end. It's a gruesome lesson for a girl who must have been around 11 or 12. Karen was also the name of Anderson's hated half-sister, who six years elder than him was fostered out to another family at a young age. It's not known why he hated Karen so much, but there is no record of her ever being sinful or dangerous as the Karen of the Red Shoes is. In a symbolist reading, a shoe represents sexuality. It stands as a yonic symbol for female genitals. And you don't have to go far in the world of sexual fetish to see evidences of shoes as sexual objects. Karen's red shoes and her desire for them can easily be read as a lust deeper than most women might feel for a pair of red high heels. It suggests a fall from grace, her dancing a physical manifestation of her body being taken over by sin, her inability to stop 
a comment on the spiralling nature of fallen women's decline in the mid-19th century. In The Soldier with the Red Beard, Anderson invokes the devil, and in a post-Napoleonic age, soldiers were seen as devils and corruptors of young women. The Soldier and the loss of Karen's feet under the axe are reminiscent of the grim story of the Handless Maiden, which also appears elsewhere as the girl with silver hands. In that tale, a poor woodcutter's daughter is betrayed by her father who makes a deal with the devil for his hands in order to save his family. But the devil never specifies whose hands he will take, and when the time comes, he wants the hands of the maiden, not the man. It could be that Karen's unstoppable dance is influenced by history also. We've spoken at some length on this podcast about the dancing plagues in the episode on the Pied Piper. And I recommend going back for a listen if the idea of dancing plagues intrigues you. But as well as the medieval epidemic of plagues in which people could not stop dancing, possessing people with an unstoppable urge, in Anderson's time there was also a new sensation sweeping Europe. Listomania. Franz Liszt, a Hungarian composer, was so popular, so moving to his young female fan base that in 1841, at a concert in Berlin, his fans became hysterical with enthusiasm. It was a fanaticism that would not be seen until the swarming of the Beatles in the 1960s. Liszt's fans would faint, swarm the stage, fighting for his gloves or handkerchief. They would collect his coffee dregs in vials and, of course, wear his likeness on cameos and pins on their dresses. Now, this seems completely normal to anyone who grew up with the Beatles, Elvis, or One Direction, but in the 1840s, they thought it was a genuine medical malady. They thought women were becoming hysterical due to the music. By 1844, the term listomania or list fever was coined and it was thought to be a contagion. The Red Shoes was published in 1845 at the height of speculation of what was wrong with the young women of today. It could be Karen's dancing curse throws back not only to the dancing plagues of medieval Europe, but also this new contagion of the first boy band mania. For those wondering, Liszt was pretty cute back in the day, and a very skilled and emotional performer. It was the height of the Romantic period, and no one was more romantic than Liszt. To modern readers of The Red Shoes, it was harder to blame the little girl for coveting an item of footwear. Anderson's darker and more puritanical zeal is glossed over in many versions of his stories today the violence and religion in them softened. To ballet dancers, the story of the Red Shoes has a different meaning about the power of dance to take them over and consume a dancer. Much of this interpretation comes from the wonderful 1948 film also called The Red Shoes. No other fairy tale has been so changed in its course by a film. And certainly I think it is one of the greatest uses of folklore in cinema. It is not a retelling of the tale like a Disney film, but rather it uses the fairy tale as a 
but rather uses the fairy tale as a central metaphor of a more complex and realistic story about passion, ambition, and sacrifice. The film centers around a ballet company and an aspiring ballerina, Victoria, who must make tough decisions and sacrifices in order to advance her career. She becomes torn between a man she loves, an ambitious young composer, and her career with the company and its director. The climax of the film is a ballet of the red shoes, choreographed by the famous Australian dancer and choreographer Robert Heltman. In the ballet, the dancer Victoria plays the role of Karen, covered in the shoes. The beautiful red satin points magically lacing up as she steps into them. The role of the shoemaker, created and performed by the great dancer Leonid Messini, doubles as the role of the soldier in the original tale. And Victoria as Karen cannot stop dancing. The role Victoria performs takes over her and she continues to dance off stage, out of the theatre and to her death, throwing herself in front of a train. In this film, the shoes represent dance itself, a passion and career Victoria cannot give up. The curse is ambition, not vanity. There is no clear moral solution or judgment at the end, but rather a complex question about the nature of art as career. Fairy tales and ballet have a long history together. Ballet composers and choreographers have preserved some of the best fairy tales, such as Swan Lake, and drawn out the most popular, such as Sleeping Beauty, into more complex stories with intricate characters. It seems only fair that fairy tales help out ballet in return, in giving the art form a tale all its own. As dark and violent as the journey of a dancer, and as poetic and redeeming as the art of dance itself. Music was once again by the amazing Kai Engel. Please head to our website to learn more about this amazing Russian composer that I love so much, who we use again and again because we love his work. Singing Bones is a part of the Dark Myths Podcast Collective. We've had a few more podcasts added to the fold recently, including The History of Pirates. If you like this show, you should head to darkmyths.org and check out the other podcasts there. I bet there's another you'd like too. Singing Bones was brought to you today by you, the listeners. And this episode in particular was made possible thanks to Annika Forsberg from Queensland, Australia. Thank you, Annika. I've been so overwhelmed by the generosity of you, my wonderful listeners. Your donations make all of this possible. I work on the show whenever I can, but it, this is a labour of love, and it's so wonderful to hear that you are enjoying the podcast. To that end, please rate and review us on iTunes if you can. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and join the conversation with other fairy tale people. I'm sorry to make you all wait so long between episodes, but it's just me here most of the time, and this is just one of the ways in which I tell and share stories of the world. I'll be back in a month with an episode on many types of fur, which looks from donkey skin to cat skin to tatter coats. <laughs>
I'll be exploring stories of hidden princesses and fated rings. Sorry, it's such a long wait, but I'll be in Europe enjoying some in-person fairy tale research. So please follow along on Instagram and see some of the magic I discover. Till then, wishing you a happily ever after. I'm Claire Testoni.